the next theme that comes to us in the life of Joseph in chapter 39. Now, if you noticed, we did skip 38. 38 is not about Joseph. It's about one of his brothers. And uh, really doesn't uh, add to the life of Joseph at this point. So, we did skip uh, chapter 38. So, uh, what about Joseph? Uh, we left uh, this poor fella in the hands of uh, uh, Ishmaelites on his way down to Egypt. Last week, as uh, we tackled our first installment, we realized and brought forth the fact that Joseph was a man who had received a dream. He had received this dream from God, which we said was, of course, of great importance. We challenged ourselves to to receive, re-receive, revive, perhaps a dream that God has given to us for life, for family, for ministry. We just can't uh, simply float through life as believers. We have to believe that when the Spirit of God comes into our lives, He empowers us for a purpose. As I said uh, uh, yesterday, no, last week, uh, when I was preaching up in Barcelona, I said, you know, we weren't saved for ourselves. We were saved, we were brought to Christ for a greater cause, the kingdom of heaven and the task that God has for us. We said that when a man or a woman of God has a dream, the world will come against us. He will, the world will come against that dream and will try to place us into a pit as was the case of Joseph. But as you read always in the scripture, in the life of Joseph, you will find that it says, but God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph even in that pit. To the point, we, asked, we pointed out, that there came a caravan. We said, it was a caravan sent by God. In every, after every pit or in every pit that Satan would try to place you in, there will be a caravan sent by God to take you out of that pit and to move you on in the different stages of our life. We said that uh, in the life of Joseph, despite the problems, God was with him, working out his plan for him and to fulfill the dream that he had placed in his heart. Lovely reading the life of Job, especially if you can sit down and just read it from start to finish and realize all that happened to this young man and God was there. So what was this path on which he was embarked? Let's pray and ask God to speak to us this morning through his word. Father, we look at Joseph and... It isn't hard to identify with him. So many parts of his life, Father, just seem to be the normal occurrences in our own pilgrimage. It isn't hard, Father, to see how Christ-like he was. And it certainly isn't hard to see how much of an example he is to our own self. So speak to us this morning, Father, through your word, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, the path of this young man began somewhere about uh, 
the age of 17, purchased by a man named Potiphar. Now this is where we find ourselves in chapter 39. Uh, he is bought by uh, the captain of the guards, we're told. Apparently, from what we understand, he was uh, some sort of man in charge of uh, the guards, the uh, private or uh, special guards that took care of Pharaoh. He was a man of power, obviously, for the position that he must have had. And uh, from, for the fact that he had servants, we obviously conclude he must have been a man of wealth there in Egypt. The life of his time with Potiphar is condensed. We're not told exactly how long he was there. Uh, some of the writers uh, imply it could have been somewhere between four to six years uh, serving uh, this, this man, Potiphar. So the time is condensed. We know that God was with Joseph. It says that. And to such an extent that Potiphar says he knew nothing of what he owned, he knew nothing of what he did except the food that was placed before him. That was all he worried about. Because he had given the administration of his home and its properties to this young man named Joseph. There was only one thing, Scripture says, that he withheld from him and that was his own wife. Now, I find it interesting that it tells us that. As if there was a reason. Now, some of the commentators seem to think that there was a, a, a very closeness of age, probably, between Joseph and Potiphar's uh, wife. Not because Potiphar was young, but because his wife might have been much younger than he was. Now, the stage really is set for us in verse 6. Go to verse 6 and we'll find one phrase that is what sets the whole mood and stage to what's about to happen. Chapter 39 and verse 6. Near the end of that verse, the last phrase simply says to us that Joseph, now I'm reading out of the New American Standard, says here, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. That little phrase really is what sets everything up. Yes, he was a servant. Yes, he was faithful. Yes, he had a lot of responsibility. But what the writer wants us to know, ladies, Joseph was a hunk. He, in Spanish they say, you know, he was like a train. Whatever it was, it took two words to describe him. It doesn't say he was handsome, only. It doesn't say he was well built, only. He seems to have had it all. Youthfulness. And verse 6 says he was handsome in form and in appearance. He must have been quite the specimen. Hey, Scripture took time to describe him that way for a reason. Why was Joseph tempted? For those of you who like titles and might be wanting to have one, it is uh, Joseph in times of temptation. So what do we do in times? Why was Joseph tempted? Someone pointed out, I believe it was Matthew Henry, he said, he was tempted because he was so tempting. At times, it is our position 
At times, it is what we are that brings about, that draws the temptations to us. Positions of greater temptation. You know, you can't be tempted with money if you have none and never touch any. But you know, if you work at a cash register, then you can be tempted, right? Sometimes it's where we are, what we are, the situations in which we find ourselves that actually create the temptations. It was because Joseph was so tempted that the whole thing occurred. It is sometimes because of our friends and because of the situations we place ourselves in. And then we wonder, why was I tempted? Or why did I fall to the temptation? Well, because you made yourself tempting. Our position can create the greater temptation. That outward beauty that perhaps favored him, obviously, was what brought about his problem, his situation. Um, You know, I don't know how you foresee it, but uh, beauty and youthfulness aren't always a good combination. Because a lot of temptation can come about. You know your children, you know your grandchildren. And you know whether you should be praying for them because of that. Sometimes beauty isn't the greatest thing to have. For it will bring about an awful lot of temptations. Uh, Potiphar, we learn, was a military man. Which obviously would mean he was always gone. I mean, military men are always traveling, always on campaigns, always following about Pharaoh and protecting him and so on. So that sets up a situation which I believe is verse 7. Let's try to understand it a little bit from uh, perhaps Potiphar's wife's perspective. Verse 7 says to us, And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, Lie with me. Verse 8, But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, With me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. Some of the different translations say that she cast her eyes upon Joseph. Uh, Another one says she took notice. Uh, Another one says, she looked with desire. It's interesting when you go to the original, what it really says is, she lifted up her eyes at him. She lifted up her eyes at him. Uh, If you like Egyptian history artifact, uh, all the things to do with that, and you look at the different, uh, what would you call them, uh, paintings or what has been found of Egyptian um, remains, the, they show us that they, they seem to have had the ones, or at least are credited with inventing eye makeup. And you always see how they really make a big deal about the eyes. As though they knew 
that the eyes were very important. She wasn't subtle, was she? She was rather right out there with uh, her thoughts and opinions. It says she casted her eyes at him, and then she just simply said to him, Lie with me. Now this is what sets up the situation for this young man. This is where you find Joseph. And that was just the introduction. So let's go to point one. Actually, we only have two points. Well, well it's a few sub-points, so well, we'll be all right. First one is this. Reason, excuse, and rationale. When facing temptation, there is always going to be reason. There is always going to be an excuse. And there is always going to be rationale. To want to take us to fall into that temptation. You know, it says of this situation, and all it says about what he did, how he handled it, it simply says he got out. He just simply didn't. But there are six things that I notice as you look into the life of Paul of uh, Joseph. Now we'll try to be really quick about them. And I would call them a multifaceted temptation. Because a lot was here. He had reason, he had the excuse, and he could have rationed the whole thing. And let me tell you, all you have to do is be in a position where you hear people's confessions to realize how creative human nature can be. My word, we can ration, we can excuse, we can reason to do what is wrong in the most creative ways. First of all, it was the accepted morality of the day. The archaeologists tell us that there were, at that Type of, of uh, at that height was no different than our world today. Much like today, it was simply what was the accepted form of life, the immorality. The scandals of today are no different than what could have been the scandals of then. The woman had great freedom, and uh, it was much. It was not like things were in the. Uh, up perhaps uh, with the nomad tribes and how they lived their lives. The Egyptians were very progressive in their, in, in their society. So the avalanche was simply everybody's doing it. So what is it that the devil throws at you? And you just say to yourself, well, you know, I'm not the only one. I had a young man, well, he's not very young actually. Gee, 65. He doesn't come to our church. He goes to another church. And um, uh, he, uh, he was arrested this week. Don't try to guess who it is, please. Just, just stay with the story. He was arrested. And we knew that it was a possibility. About two weeks ago, called me and said, Pastor, I have something to confess. He said, uh, you know, uh, I stopped drinking about three weeks ago. That was two weeks ago, so it's been about a month now. He says, uh, I, I, I promised the Lord I was not going to drink anymore. 
And I said, why are you telling me this? He said, uh, I have a feeling I'm going to be in trouble. And then he explained to me the situation. And I said to him, if they go to the police with that, you're going to be in trouble. He says, so pray that God will have mercy on you, because if they go, you are going to be in trouble. Well, um, the same day that the, the, the denuncia, that uh, I don't know what you call that, I'm not sure. What the, the report was taken to the police that morning, that same, before noon hour, he had been arrested. Immediately they picked him up. In speaking to him, he said, But you know, Pastor, the thing is, is that I see so many people doing it. And they don't get in trouble. And I just thought, really, what, what's wrong with just a little bit of alcohol? I said, I don't know, you tell me. He says, oh no, I know now. He says, I know now what it did to me. Would you like to be arrested at the age of 65? And especially for what he was arrested for, which I'm not going to tell you. I mean, it was embarrassing. All because he couldn't say no. He hung around the wrong people, had the excuse of, well, I was working, and I didn't pay for it, they invited me, and it was on and on and on and on and on and on. But there you have it. Then it was in the wrong place at the wrong time, did the wrong thing, and now he's got serious legal problems. The accepted morality. Folks, we live on a higher plane. Perhaps that's something we seem to forget. We seem to forget that as believers, if you know Christ as your Savior, you are asked to live on a higher plane. You don't look to the world to say, well, they're doing it. The accepted morality of the world is not our accepted morality. The accepted line of morality outside of the church sometimes comes inside the church and gets too close. And the everyone is doing it. Folks, that's, that's just wrong. That's a wrong reason. Because we can simply say no. Even if everyone is doing it. Number two, there is a critical time here. The age. You notice the age? Apparently we're told he must have been somewhere between 22, 26 years of age. We're told by some of the fellows that uh, reason these things down, that Potiphar's wife must have been about Joseph's age or just a wee bit older. With age comes his trials and his temptations. Everything in its place. Age doesn't give us some sort of immunity to fall out of communion with God. Oh, it changes in the aspects of our life. It's going to be pretty difficult to to, uh, perhaps bring temptations based on different age groups to different age people. A child will never be tempted in the same area as an adult is. 
And someone in their golden years, well, their addictions or their weaknesses will certainly be different than when they were when they were young, but they're still in relation to where they are and how they move. It was just a critical time for this young man. And Joseph simply said no. It's scripture, one of the King James versions says, he got him out. Some of the versions say he ran out, he went out, he got out. However you put it, he turned around and ran. He didn't toil with the idea of temptation. He never said to himself, well, it is within my accepted age group. Number three, someone pointed out Satan surely must have said to him, you deserve the indulgence. I mean, you've had it rough. Your brothers did what they did to you. You got thrown into a pit. You got sold as a slave. Now you're serving in this house. There's Certainly, you deserve a little indulgence. Have you ever been good for a good long time where you kind of say to yourself, you know, I really have been good. Um... What would be so wrong with me? Folks, that's exactly what the devil at times wants us to think. To consider that indulgence is something we have earned. Number four. Take the loneliness aspect. He was working there. Uh, Loneliness sort of worked against him. Uh, He was uh, away from home. He was a foreigner. He was in a different uh, culture, a different language. You know, the life of an immigrant is difficult. The life of someone living abroad can be difficult. But sometimes it's somewhat, I would say, anonymous. But he knows us. And sometimes we're tempted to do things just because nobody knows us. When you work in... Companies that deal with uh, businessmen who do a lot of traveling. Now, I don't know here in Europe. I realize I've not been involved in that world as I was back in the U.S. But especially companies that have a lot of integrity and want that integrity to be kept. They have seminars for their business travelers. For their salesmen and representatives who do a lot of traveling. And they bring that fact to them. The fact that you travel is actually something that can create a weakness in you. Uh, and, uh, and they try to keep their company ethics and so on. And, and they say to these men, they say to these women, be ever so careful when you travel. Be ever so careful when you travel. When I was um, in, um, in Cuba this last time, there was a gentleman there who was a pilot one of the men in the group. And a nice fellow, we got to talking to him a lot. And he was telling us some of stories about uh, his line of work. And one of the stories he, or one of the experiences he shared with us was that he would never be found alone with one of the stewardesses at any time, any place, anywhere. He says, because it's a really rough world. And he says that all kinds of things occur. 
And then he gave us an example. He says he was in a lift, in a lift. And I guess it was, it was quite a long drop or, or a rise or whatever, quite a few floors. And it was just him and one of the stewardesses. And uh, about three weeks later, his supervisors called him in. And this stewardess had uh, basically cried out uh, impropriety on his part, you know, that he did something in the lift. And he looked at his boss, he says, boss, I, I didn't do anything. He says, well, we got this situation, what do you, what's good? And he says, I didn't do anything. He said, uh, you figure out how to, but I, I didn't do anything. It was however many stories there, the time inside that elevator. So they contacted the hotel where this had taken place, and the hotel said, oh, we have cameras in our elevators. Guess who got fired? The stewardess. She was trying to make a quick buck. You know? If she cries out all of this, then uh, she might get some kind of a settlement and all this stuff. And he said, I've learned. When you travel constantly, you have to keep your guard up. Because people just sort of lose it because of it. So the loneliness aspect maybe played an awful lot into this. Someone did remind us in regards to Potiphar's wife, many of the world's loneliest people are married. Marriage can be lonely. And someone else pointed out, obviously Potiphar's wife had too much time on her hands. Idleness can get us in trouble. So it is good, folks, if we find ourselves busy. We all look forward to retirement so we don't work for someone. But don't look forward to retirement to be idle. Because you're still human. And there's still an enemy out there trying to thwart how you finish. Number five, there is that nagging aspect. It says she spoke to him daily. You, 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 you deal with temptation at a given point and you feel very confident because you won. Great. But when that temptation comes at us day after day, after day. How do we deal with it? How did he handle the situation? A reaction that can come after a time of tragedy. You know, when you're strong, you can handle anything. But catch you at a moment of need or weakness, and that day-to-day thing that you were able to say no to, that's the day that you're going to say yes. And when you know yourself to be in a place of weakness, what did he do? He just simply got out. Why does it seem so simple, yet it's so hard to do? He just got out. You know, there's an image in my mind. Before I became a Christian, an image that at first I didn't understand... It wasn't until I became a Christian that I realized what it was all about. And I can still see it. 
There were three of us standing around one of the machines at work. Remember I've told you I became a Christian while working in a factory. And the, uh, we were talking about a boxing match that had occurred the day before. And uh, we were just sort of discussing this boxing match. And the assistant foreman stepped into the conversation. Now, he was a believer. He was the man that gave me my first Bible. Um, um, his name is Albrecht Myers. I still get emails from him. I pray for him. He's got cancer. And uh, he tries to keep me up on how he's doing with the chemo and so on. I haven't seen him in at least 25 years. But I still hear from him through these emails. And Albrecht came into this conversation, a young guy, recently married. He was a big uh, German fellow. Yeah, he was just kind of tough looking, you know. But he was sweet as all things. And he came into the conversation, we were talking about this boxing match, and we just went on about it uh, in a very um, street-style kind of thing. And you could just see the face on, on Albrecht was kind of just getting heavier and heavier, and he just walked away. In the middle of the conversation, he just walked away. And I, I noticed it, and I don't know if the other guys noticed it, but I noticed that he walked away. And I thought, why did he just walk away? And I did a little uh, rewind of the conversation real quick, right there. What, what, what did I say? And I thought, you know, I, why did he walk away? The only thing that came to my mind was the horrific language we were using. It was just terrible. But that's how we talked. You know, he never said two words without saying a, 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 a curse. And I thought, I wonder if that's what it was. And he stayed with me. Whenever I think of some of these examples of he just got out, he just walked away. I think of Albert. He just walked away. Didn't stick around. And the last one of these uh, multifaceted temptations that came at him. Did you realize who she was? She was Potiphar's wife. She had contact with Pharaoh. She went to the dinners, to the parties, to the barbecues. You know what I mean? She did the, the night uh, uh, long gown evenings and, and uh, by the river things. She was around Pharaoh. He had a dream, remember he had a dream? Now maybe she could have helped him in advancing his dream. I wonder how much could have happened if he would have thought, well, she might be able to get me an audience with Pharaoh. Yeah, he was between a rock and a hard place. What could happen if I do? What could happen if I don't? What would happen if I do to progress myself, to, to make myself go further in this dream? This desire, this thing that's been placed in my mind? Or what's going to happen if I don't? And she gets angry at me. And for him, it didn't seem to be a difficult choice, did it? He got himself out. Anyway, that was just the first point. Because that has to do with the multifaceted temptation. Now real quick, let's answer this question. How did he keep himself from it? 
What is it that helped him deal with the things that came at his life to tempt him? Well, the resisting. Resisting in time of temptation. The bottom line is, it's, we'll repeat again, it's, hopefully this will dry into our mind, he refused and he got out. The first point is this, in regards to this part, verse 8 and 9. Would you go back and realize that he understood what he had in his hands? Verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 8 says, But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here... My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. Verse 9. There is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you. The sacred trust. He knew that he was managing a sacred trust. Integrity and character in this young man said, I will not break the sacred trust. He knew he was entrusted with family. He knew he was entrusted with friends. He knew he was entrusted with a job. He knew he was entrusted with time. And so have you. And may I remind you what has been quickly and often said, we are not islands in and of ourselves. Whatever we do will affect others. My friend that I told you about a few minutes ago, he has children. He has an elderly mother. How do you think it's all going to pan out? When he has to explain why he was arrested. He's been let go, pending charges and all that stuff. But he's now asked to deal with court. Can you just simply say, well, it was my situation, that's all I have to worry about? The sacred trust. He would not break the trust that God had, that uh, was, was given to him. He considered one thing in verse 9. How could I sin against God? How could I do this in God's sight? All sin is sin against God. Perhaps that's a reality we need to be reminded of. There is no sin that does not offend our God. There is no sin that does not cause God's heart to cry, to welt. We are asked to not quench the Spirit. What is the difference between he and David? King David. You know, David said, I have sinned against God. He said that after the fact. But at least he said it. And he confessed it. Joseph said it before the fact. And he got him out. Joseph said it and ran out. There is a place of power to the child of God when he resists temptation. 
We receive that from the example of the Lord Jesus. If you think back to the book of Luke, at the time of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, and you remember the temptations that were brought to him by Satan, at the end, when he's done dealing with Satan, Satan runs away. It says that he came out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is a result given to us when we are able to confront temptation and win. And the last thing is just simply, he got him out. He fled that particular situation, that youthful lust. Whatever the situation is for you, when you know that what's on the line is your relationship with God, your fellowship with the Father, he just got him out. And sometimes the only way to overcome is just to get ourselves out. Matthew Henry said this, Better to lose a good coat than a good conscience. And so he left behind his garment. At this point, if you think through this, Joseph has lost two coats. The one his father had given him, and the one that he used as a servant. And by now, you've probably realized he's had to deal with two different pits. He's had to deal with the one his brothers threw him in, and he's had to deal with the one being in Potiphar's house as a slave. There is an ancient Hebrew tradition in regards to Joseph. And this is how it's kind of said that it went down in that bedroom or in that chamber. She proposed... He refused, and she said, he said to her, how can I do this in God's sight? And of course, the, the Egyptians had many gods, and she had one of the gods was inside that room. And so when she heard him say that, she was rather confused and baffled, and she realized one of the Egyptians' gods were in the room, so she took her out of garment and put it over the face of the god. And said, he can see us no more. To which Joseph replied, my God seeth us still. My God still can see us. The full understanding of the presence of God. That is the motivation behind the idea that we handle temptation. In times of temptation, just get out. Because your God seeth you still. Let's stand and pray.